It was the summer of 1968. During our mid-year at Art College, Howard and myself rented a whitewashed daub and thatched cottage from a Mrs Eileen O'Connor. It was one of only six houses in the hamlet of Bally Row on the Dingle Peninsula, County Kerry. Daub and thatch. Hamlet of Bally Row. <sighs> Too much preamble. James is reading a story aloud and I'm obliged to be its patient victim with all these useless details easily edited out. Hi, dear Ruth. Hello there. Um, I'm going to talk Laura the Naked. Well, I'm, I'm really sorry I don't speak Irish, I'm afraid. Oh, I beg your <laughs> Just English, yeah, sorry. All right, OK. A remote location of a small farming and peat-cutting scattered hamlets on the moors. Can you tell us maybe uh, about wh- where we are? Well, you're in um, the Dinga Peninsula, it's Corcoran in Irish, and um, we're about eight miles from Dingle, the nearest town. In Bally Row between Bally David and Brandon. But I don't have a room here, but we do have a small cottage. A small cottage? Yeah. I wonder if would we be able to stay there? Well, it would be OK for you, but it's fairly basic. We brought Irish books of us to read over peat fires in the evenings. <sighs> peat fires in the evenings, tourist guide details, bones without marrow. Remember, this is James's story, not yours. So it should be for him to determine the telling of it and the way it's to be told. I'm just happening upon it as it wafts by me. Our favourite book which we read aloud to each other was 20 Years of Growing by Morris O'Sullivan, about growing up in the Blasket Islands off the coast from the Dingle Peninsula. There is no doubt that youth is a fine thing, though my own is not over yet. Did you never hear how the life of man is divided? Twenty years of growing, twenty years in blossom, twenty years of stooping, and twenty years declining. Look now, I have said. Would you believe it? I had a little board tied behind my back with these words written on it. If you speak a word of Irish, you will be beaten on back and on flank. I had bought a second-hand Gaelic Irish phrase book from the London market and I memorised a few words and greetings. Mm. We've been exchanging selective memory anecdotes. We've talked about our children fleeing our grasp, we've waded through the swamp of my divorces and his clandestine exploits as a punishing call girl in silk stockings and leather riding crop. I'm the only one James can tell such things to at least he can count on an absolute absence of moral judgment of any kind. He and I spent most of our enlightened lifetimes not recounting banalities. We've got no mutual football clubs to banter about sexual conquests. No, this is no boys' night out. It's just the old fellows pretending to defy time. And so he's reading me his story. Walking with Howard in the lane across the moor, we met a tall, burly, rather fearsome farmer-looking man in gumboots and cap. He waved a stick at us in greeting as we passed. Yes, my Hamish. Get it right. Yes, I sensed James reaching for something unique here. He's much too aware of offending me with soft chatter. He's basic, is James. I've watched him build an entire house with his own bare hands. 
hauling barrows of bricks up twisting Provençal lanes before donning frock and wig and stiletto heels for an evening's outrage at the local village fair. He's the real thing. Composite man. No either or. He lives his two selves openly, male and female. He's no faker. Unlike you, fabricator, public liar, story poacher, the great pretender. He called out, Hey! And turning, we saw him gesturing to us to come back. We were a bit reluctant to do so as he seemed slightly aggressive in his manner. Where are you from? We're English, from London. English. I killed an Englishman once. I killed an Englishman once, he said. Jesus. I need to ask myself precisely how I'm going to listen to this. If I am James's chosen ears, then he knows me well enough to know he is swimming in shark-infested waters. But your mutual respect requires that you swim parallel not all the while trying to anticipate the next sentence or the next event, letting your taste for a dramatic situation run riot as you listen. At this point, Howard and I were just about ready to run. What are you doing in these parts? We're reading Irish literature. Yeats and George Moore. Yeats and George Moore? Talking Irish literature with a killer? Edit that out, James. Or maybe... He seemed interested, and so I talked to him enthusiastically about 20 years of growing. Oh, fehibli on the force. I knew Marosso Sullivan's niece. Listen, I've been wanting to tell an Englishman what I did. It was a long time ago, and it was a terrible thing. And I'm sorry for what happened. I'm already tracing out James's old farmer for my own safekeeping. Watch him walking, hear his swarthy accent. But I've decided to give him a sense of theatricality. I need to lift him off James's reading page. I was a boy at Brandon Creek, up there, be- below the mountain. I know the thrust of him as he stalks the daylight, stopping wayfarers in the lanes, affronting them with mad tales. I've even given him a slight limp. It was 1921. It surely wasn't. I can't for sure remember the date he told me. It might have been a little earlier. It surely was. You see, a small country like ours fighting for freedom as we were had to use every and any means at her disposal to thwart the enemy activities and to eliminate them where possible. If it meant the elimination of certain people or certain things, well, it couldn't be helped, but it just had to be done. It was the time of the Troubles, and at the end of the uprising, the Sinn Fainians came to our village. They were going to... Sinn Fainers. IRA men, but not Sinn Fainians. Get it right, boy It was the time of the troubles and the end of the uprising when the Sinn Féiners came to our village. They were going to hide out in a cave on a mountain. But before leaving us to go to the cave, they called all the men and the boys that were over 14 years of age to a meeting in the village bar and told us that they expected us 
to show our loyalty to the nationalist cause. Certain factions in the IRA in Kerry decided to take matters into their own hands as they felt perhaps that the commanding officers in certain parts of the county were not active enough. The Fenians put a revolver on the table and made us draw straws for it. The sharpest straw fell on me. I was just 14 years old and the youngest in the room. I was told to go out and shoot an Englishman. Go out and shoot an Englishman. There's surely a film scenario struggling to burst out. It has enough bones of popular mythology to create a dramatic carcass. It's a perfect way for an Irishman to scare the pants off a Brit. Describe an IRA assassination, the unspoken meaning being it might be you next, English art student boy. The only Englishman around about was the lighthouse keeper. I lay in wait for him up the lane, not far from here. He reached out and gripped my arm and said he wanted to show us where it had happened. He led us about a quarter of a mile down the lane and pointed to the hedgerow. It was here about that happened. He always used to walk back the same way and he wasn't armed. I had never fired a gun before. I waited until he was very close. I need to rewrite this scene. Who is this lighthouse man? What is he doing in a remote Dingle village? James's mention of the English lighthouse keeper is simply too anonymous, too wishy-washy to have any real tension. So I'm forced to give the fellow flesh before blowing his head off. It's basic literature, James. You don't have someone killed unless you first biograph him. This is the way the scene should go, might go killed by a mere boy on the cusp of puberty and the IRA men purposely putting the bar as low as 14. Prove you're a man by killing a Brit and be man enough to choose him yourself. And all this for James's ears. James, who spent his adult life proving he's a man by often walking rough neighbourhoods in high heels and sheer black nylon stockings. But We've got to place the scene near the lighthouse itself so we can hear the sea in the background. You there walking, mister. Stop where you'd be and don't turn around. Hang on. Surely the drawing of straws and the singling out of victims is men's dirty doings. It renders this village too one-dimensional. So I'm going to give the lighthouse keeper the gift of a daughter. I want to see if there might be some X-chromosomal involvement in the tale, some romantic attachment with the girl, some pubertal fantasy on the part of the assassin, maybe. Who knows? What would you be wanting with my father in that tone of voice? You know this boy, Jenny? No, not Jenny. What are you thinking here? You know this boy, Neve? He's forever annoying me outside the classroom. What's your business with us, boy? We're just beachcombing and would rather be left to ourselves. Something's wrong here. Let's do it again. Tossa, tu heenige schulen son. Bant norte hantu, agus norkas dimpo. Ken gno ha gotse damahir. You know this boy, Neve? Blincha korastum de hier last modern shongaranga. What's your business with us, boy? We're just beachcombing and would rather be left to ourselves. 
pheasants need to be shrieking out of hedges here. And the dogs, who, by the way, ought to have been barking earlier, must go mute. At, at best can whimper. Let's forget the sea. But I need the pheasants. And for a split second after the pheasants, the whole landscape goes mute. I missed him with a first shot and hit him with a second. He fell by the side of the road. Mm, don't care for that. Try this. He fell heavily over the assembled seashells and a fossilised whale's carcass. You've abandoned the seaside. He fell heavily over the village stones and a fossilised pheasant carcass. I didn't know if he was dead until later. Oh, I'm glad I told you now. It's been on my mind all these years. I'll praise God that the troubles are over now. Which he surely never would have said. He let go my arm, raised his stick in farewell and strode off in the direction he'd been going. Uh, this is beginning to sound terribly unauthentic. I don't care much for the quality of the dialogue as James remembers it. Even if there's remorse in the old man after all these years, it can't have sounded so bloody... page-ridden. We felt sure he was telling the truth. Any resemblance to the tale of the ancient mariner didn't strike me at the time, but it does now. That James himself has thought to call up Coleridge's ancient mariner shows that the old dingle farmer remains somehow an intruder in his consciousness. He's made the story his own by transforming it in the original listening, by transcribing it in the secret handwriting of his imagination, by taking from it everything he, James, needs in order to fix it forever in this new telling. Now it can't possibly belong to anyone else. Until some poaching hermit crab manages to enter its antechamber, decipher its entry code and invade it with new eyes and ears. I wonder whether he told us his story because I had greeted him in Gaelic. James is as fine-tuned and delicate as any man may be in our time, clearly born outside his proper time, Restoration England. His story harbours the murder of an innocent. It brings into his lap the entire political allegory of his generation. Kill an anonymous Englishman. Knowing the utterly non-violent James, this can only have sat in his gut these many years like festering fruit. What pleases me is the thought that James, like his protagonist, has kept all this to himself all these decades, and that the Wellspring story itself, now over 80 years old, has only been dispensed with enormous discretion. So, and what about uh, the Brandon Creek? Where, whereabouts is that? Well, um, this here is Mount Brandon, and it's named after St. Brendan, and then Brandon Creek is just about a mile and a half from here, and it's a beautiful walk, and seemingly um, St. Brendan discovered, left there and discovered America before Christopher Columbus. Brendan Creek itself is uh, dotted with small little townlands with probably difficult names like Balanahaum, Balachnachan, and Balladinuruch, and Clash, and Shanachil, and Balladoth, Balichroin. Calm in the village. Back to London, back to Art College. 
my turn now. Later on on our holiday, Howard and I walked up to Brandon Creek Village to look at the mountains at close quarter. So just as James senses I'm about to steal his thunder, he takes up the slack. We went to the village bar. I think there was only one. It was of the usual thatched and whitewashed building. We sat with our Guinness at the end of a long bench. What else? There was a row of old men sitting with their drinks at the further end. They took little interest in us and weren't talking amongst themselves. There were no women about that I remember, unless there was a barmaid. Oh, yes, yes, let's give them a barmaid. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I don't speak uh, Irish, I'm afraid, but um, I, I would love two pints of Guinness, if that's all right. All right. Thank you very much. Delicious, thank you. So, could you, could you tell me where we are? What, what the name of this pub is? This is Tigriasee, or Huigarimohar, or Brandon Creek. And, uh, so, so you're, are you from here? I am, all my life. All your life? My name is Maura Andreasee. My name's James, pleasure to meet you. Nice to meet you, James. It was a gloomy place to be in, and Howard and I were talking about going when something happened that made us stay. Angst. I hear it in his voice. I can use it. One of the old men started humming loudly. It was a strange sound to be suddenly present, and I remembered looking around at him and seeing that he was just looking into his beer glass as he was humming, and that no one else seemed to be regarding him. Soon others had taken up the humming, and the sound was loud and like a swarm of bees. Gradually it seemed to be forming a tune. Then from a tune a voice began singing in Gaelic. particularly cheerful sounding song as I remember but we were awestruck Not particularly cheerful is Anglo-speak for the adrenaline is flowing in some 
Gaelic pub homing by a team of geriatrics? Is it perhaps the fact that the old men have not greeted them upon entering, maybe not even acknowledged their presence? A man got to his feet and, without looking at anyone, went to the centre of a room. Pulling his cloth cap down over his eyes, he started to do a shuffling sort of tap dance there on the flagstones, his feet dancing to the floor, his arms down at his sides. In front of the fire in every house, no matter how poor the house was, they always had a flagstone. And you were very confined to this flagstone, especially with a lot of people around you. It was a sign of honour and skill if you could dance in a small space. To such an extent that some people were said to be able to dance on the knob of a teapot. So the men do, in fact, speak to them, not with language, but with humming and shuffle dancing. Why? What's the message here, James? The singing and humming ended, and the man returned to his seat and continued to sip his beer, looking down into the glass like the others. Nothing was said, and nothing more happened. What? I've not expected this. Howard and I finished our Guinnesses and left. James has suddenly shuffled the deck and placed the ace of spades somewhere in its midst. Has he done this explicitly to throw me off the track, knowing that a good exchange of anecdotes can be a form of canny combat between the storytellers? He might simply have walked away from the old assassin in the middle of the village, gone back to his peat-fire seminars on Irish literature, and left it at that. Why has he chosen to bring in this second scene? We wondered if it was one of the last times that an outsider would witness a spontaneous experience of a welling up of folk memory into song and dance. Oh, for fuck's sake, folk memory! Of course, there's a certain silly inevitability in the story's locale shifting itself to the pub and to the panning shot across a row of frothy Guinnesses. In the popular English mind, could the event really be Irish-Irish without this? Let's do it again. No one says a word in the Brandon Creek pub. They hum a Gaelic tune silently. They don't look at the two strangers, clearly Englishmen out in the Dingle Wilds, for some instant takeaway folklore. Help and sound will descend on us. With the power of authority, and I call on our help to double the ranks. I sound horn and bugle, and go trumpet the battle from. The sound of the blast and the powder 
will draw smoke from the hearts of the Englishmen and the families of Gwilnanorn is the fulfillment of the prophecy. Listening to this now, I wonder, is it merely the local way of saying, this is us, that is you, hold your hour, boys, have another before you shut the bleeding door behind you? A way of colouring in the invisible borderline existing between them, a means of reaffirming some ancestral solitude. Now, finally, I know what this Act 2 is really all about. Why James has glued it to the murder, and I'm anticipating what's coming next. You there, walking out of the pub. The story's not finished. What comes next? That's it. Nothing else happened. You're trying to tell me there's nothing more to the story? That's right. And where do you think you're going? Down the hill. Then the trek back to London. Over my dead carcass. Get back in the pub. There's something you've neglected to say, James. I could tell you what this is, but I'd rather hear it from you. You've clearly chosen this story to impress me, led me this far by the nose, and now you abandon me at the edge. Listen to this. The shortest straw fell to myself. I was told to go out and shoot an Englishman. I killed an Englishman once. We're just beachcombing and would rather be left to ourselves. sitting in a dark theatre here, revising, as you always do, every bad play and film scenario in your head as it unfolds before you. You have to really listen to James. Yes, yes. But James isn't listening to James. Can it be he's missed the whole point of his own story? Look around you, young James. What do you see there in the pub? Exactly what I told you. Nothing else. But what is the relation between your killer farmer in the village and the scene in the bar? None that I know of. I can imagine a forlorn look on James's face. He senses that some terrible beauty is about to lock into the heart of his story, invading it, raping and plundering, pillaging it before it's even had time to flower. Who are those old men in the pub? Just some villagers. Pensioners in cloth caps. No, James. They are potentially each one the murderer. 
Any one of them might have picked a short straw. They are all of an age to have experienced the killing of the English lighthouse keeper. This story belongs to the collectivity, not to one solitary boy who happened to pull a trigger. It happened in this very pub over 80 years ago. The revolver was set down on one of these wooden tables here. The straws were picked right here. The barkeeper's grandfather likely ran the place there. It was coming to a stage in many counties where people were forced to choose which side they wanted to be with. This was all in the name of a republic. They might not necessarily have believed in all the sentiment that surrounded the republic, but they were afraid that if they didn't comply, they could be targeted in some way. The sound of the blast and the powder will draw smoke from the hearts of the Englishmen. The IRA men were testing the loyalty of the entire village. All of these men are implicated. If anybody is guilty, they all are. That's the heavy air you obviously felt in the pub. You were witness in 1968 to an event which had stopped with its own internal clocks half a century before. And with her humming and silent dancing, they were letting you know it. Foreigner, interloper in their quiet, empty afternoon. Are you really comprehending this or merely inventing it? After all, you don't know if the men in the pub were even around at the time of the killing, or if they were, whether their little welcoming song for James had any bearing on the affair. Aren't you just paring the ragged fingernails of James's story? Well, in any case, James is astonished that none of this ever occurred to him. Nearly 20 years after he first told me his story, I find James once more, this time in Southsea, near Portsmouth, where he reads me his primordial tale all over again. I really don't know who I am at the moment. I'm just just an old person who is coming close to the end of their experiences. <laughs> yes, I do feel like the ancient mariner telling my story about Ireland to everybody I meet whenever Ireland is mentioned. I don't know why, but it's stuck in my mind and it always seems relevant to me. But there we are. It's a long time ago, and so I tell the tale. I am damned to infidelity. I once interviewed a South African paleontologist who claimed that William Shakespeare had access to marijuana and cocaine. But in talking to this essentially uninteresting man, I took him in, took his story away from him, creating in my head my own story about him. This gentle professor, who'd never taken more than an aspirin in his lifetime, yet fantasized about the bard on dope. That's what I poached from him. And I'm remembering the night of first listening to James's story many years ago, 
and how I swallowed it, then spit back its offal in my own twisted shape, and musing about old Mr. Shakespeare, the greatest poacher of other people's stories who ever lived, lying on his bed at New Place, smoking his clay pipe full of the latest consignment of hash from the New World, wondering whose work he might plunder and embellish next season at the Globe, telling stories about stories about people telling stories. And suddenly I'm away in the tiny hamlet of Ballyroe. I'm walking its mangled lanes and taking in its tristesse here in the early 21st century, where such a place no longer belongs. You couldn't even find it on a map if you didn't know it was there. Hi, dear Ruth. The landlady, Eileen O'Connor, is long gone, but... My name is Jennifer O'Connor. I'm the daughter of Eileen O'Connor, who rented a little cottage just down the road to two English people in 1968. And then, James, I stroll up the road a piece to what you call Brandon Creek Village, which isn't a village at all, but only a small harbour and a couple of townlands, a few scattered farms and houses... There was two pubs there. There was a Welsh's pub, today called Unboher, and the second pub was called Tigging GSE. And the little pub where the pensioners put the fear of Kerry into you is long since gone with the wind. She said in the story that when he went into the pub, there was all these old men sitting, looking into their pines and not talking to each other. I find that very unbelievable because the only reason they went to the pub is for the chat and the crack and the sing-song, and the banter, and the storytelling, etc. Still drifting and practically hallucinating as I am, there's a soft humming in my head, Gaelic humming, and a soft shoe shuffle over the beer slops. And if there was any dancer amongst them, they tried to entice the dancer to dance. If he had a pint or two, he would dance. And maybe they wanted to impress the English people as well. A distant gunshot out of time. If ever there really was one. A couple of things strike me as strange about the story. The first is that the uh, local IRA group would have brought people who were not involved in the group together in a pub. It's a very unprofessional way to do business. The, the likelihood of a 14-year-old guy carrying out admission like that is uh, risky. I believed the old man because there was no sense of bravado about it. The fact that he told me that he'd missed the shot, that he didn't even dare discover whether he'd killed him, convinced me that, that he was telling the truth. There is fairly good evidence that people who invent a story can actually go on to believe it if they tell it often enough. Resulting in a dead lighthouse keeper 
a lighthouse is mentioned in the story and th- there is no lighthouse in the parish of Moore or the parish of Kilcoyne or that area beside Mount Brendan. There's no lighthouse? No. Oh, right. Oh, dear. How very confusing. <laughs> I don't know what to think now. Oh, gosh, that puts the whole story into doubt. It doesn't matter, James. Don't you see? It's a story. It's wandering in the air currents. It's not meant to stay put. Lighthouse keeper or no lighthouse keeper. Real assassination or invented. Maybe your old gumboots farmer was stealing somebody else's story and then sold it to you. A Royal Marine living in the Coast Guard station in Belly David, he was walking one Sunday morning towards the end of the War of Independence and he was shot. And I think that the local community were not impressed because he was unarmed. The person who killed him emigrated to America and never came home. Afterwards, a gunship came in and threatened to blow up Belly David and Maria, the next village of Maria, and everybody disappeared. I thought that he was unburdening his soul, as it were, and now I really wonder why he told me the story at all. What's the difference? Somewhere in that moment of unburdening his tale onto you, it grew a grain on your manhood, taught you the lifetime lessons of fear and doubt. Just where this grain sprouted inside you, and in what private quantities, you can no longer pinpoint but you carry it with you, harbour it for a short season, and one day it weighs heavily in the pocket of your memory and cracks through. It just so happens to be me who intercepts it in midair. It grows hot in my hands, and scalds me forever. That was James's story. Written and directed by David Zane Myrowitz. Stephen Ray was the story poacher. James of the title was James Rook himself, who read his own story. Tom McQueen played James as a young man, and Paddy Vorhan MacGarrett was the old farmer. Richard Smallwood, the lighthouse keeper, and Roisin Dalby, his daughter. Christine Demora played the barmaid, and Anthony O'Shea was the young boy. The dancer was Thomas O'Shea and the accordion was played by Padraig O'Shea. The singers, Paddy Vorhan MacGarrett, Noel O'Moyle Owen, Matt McCorhig, Irla O'Murachu, Bosco Conachur, Padraig O'Shea and Marcus MacDonald. In the documentary sequences you heard Sinead Joy, Padraig O'Haley, Jeanette E. Hulevoin, Bosco Conachur, and from the archives, the voice of rebel leader Frank Thornton. 
Sound supervision and sound design were by Damien Chanel. James's Story by David Zane Meyerowitz was produced by Kevin Brew. The series producer of Drama on One is Kevin Reynolds. The programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.